This episode of Awards Chatter is brought to you by Universal Television, presenting Girls 5 Eva. Girls 5 Eva follows a one-hit wonder 90s girl group who attempts a comeback while hilariously navigating family and relationships, plus the joys and pains of middle age. The show stars Sarah Bareilles, Renee Elise Goldsbury, Paula Pell, and Busy Phillips. Don't miss the series critics call the funniest show on television. Girls 5 Eva is now streaming on Netflix and is for your Emmy consideration for Outstanding Comedy Series and all other eligible categories. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to the 522nd episode of the Hollywood Reporter's Awards Chatter Podcast. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg. And my guest today is one of the most fascinating and trailblazing filmmakers in the business. She's an Emmy and BAFTA Award winner and an Oscar and Golden Globe Award nominee whose middle name should probably be first. For 2012's Middle of Nowhere, she became the first black woman to win the Sundance Film Festival's Best Director Prize. For 2014 Selma, which was the first studio film ever made about Dr. Martin Luther King, she became the first black woman to direct a film that was nominated for the Best Director Golden Globe and the first black woman to direct a film that was nominated for the Best Picture Oscar. For 2016's 13th, which was the first documentary to ever open the New York Film Festival, she became the first black woman to receive an Oscar nomination as a director in a feature category. For 2018's A Wrinkle in Time, she became the first black woman to direct a film with a budget of at least $100 million. And for her latest work, 2023's Origin, which is about prejudice across vast swaths of history and geography, and how the Pulitzer Prize-winning author Isabel Wilkerson connected the dots between them for her 2020 best-selling book, Cast, The Origins of Our Discontent, she became the first black woman to direct a film that played in competition at the Venice Film Festival. Origin was very warmly received there and at its North American premiere shortly thereafter at the Toronto International Film Festival. The Washington Post has called her a singular figure in the arts world, a disruptor. The New York Times has described her as a filmmaker whose art has become increasingly inseparable from her activism. And Time Magazine has named her one of the 100 most influential people in the world. Ava DuVernay. Over the course of a conversation at the offices of DuVernay's distribution company, Array, the 51-year-old and I discussed her circuitous path to the film industry, in which she worked initially as a publicist, only quitting that job after winning Best Director at Sundance, the evolution of her social conscience and desire to tell stories that highlight injustices in the world, how her feelings about Hollywood have changed over the decades since Selma and the Oscar So White controversy that followed it, why she is so passionate about Origin, which she made independently and which stars her frequent collaborators Ingenue Ellis Taylor and Nisi Nash-Betts, as well as John Bernthal, plus much more. And so without further ado, let's go to that conversation. 
Hey, but thank you so much for doing this. It's great to finally get you on the podcast. I'm thrilled to be here. I made it. I finally made it. (laughs) Well, I want to begin by asking you, can you just tell our listeners where we are? Because I've never been here before and I'm kind of, uh, my mind is blown. Oh, wow. Well, you're at Array. This is uh, a creative campus that I bought with my Wrinkle in Time money (laughs) a few years back. I said, you know what? You can blow this money. You can, you know, take trips. You can do those things. And those are wonderful. But why not create something that might last? And so I wanted to have a place to work that I felt comfortable. So it's a four-building campus in Los Angeles in a small, you know, uh, uh, nondescript part of town, historic Filipino town. Um, and um, and you are sitting in our, our post-production offices. That's great. I uh, And you guys are, it's so tucked away in a cool way. I, I yeah. almost drove by it. I didn't I even know. see it. And then you come in. And there's a little world massive. in here, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, all right. So where we usually begin is truly the beginning. Where were you born and raised? What did your folks do oh, for wow. I was born in Long Beach, California and taken home to my, my uh, uh, an apartment in Compton, California. Okay. And I uh, grew up in Compton and my mother worked while I was growing up as a human resources executive at a, at a big hospital out here called Kaiser. Yeah. So she gave thousands and thousands of people jobs, which is something that um, I think uh, that idea of, of helping, of changing people's lives, of kind of excited when something good happens to someone else in me really comes from her. Yeah. And my father, um, it was a, uh, a small businessman. Yeah. Uh, he had a carpet and flooring business mm-hmm. and he would leave out in the morning at five in the morning with his work truck and his bag and meet his two employees. And they would lay carpet and flooring in small businesses and homes all around LA. Now we're going to go kind of chronologically. So I think there is a, another person I have to ask you about from, from my kind of reading about you, uh, who was Denise Sexton? Uh, Denise. Uh, Denise was my aunt, my aunt, Denise Amanda Sexton. And on this campus that you were so gracious to talk about at the top is the Amanda Cinema. And so oh, that's wow. our little 50-seat screening room yeah. um, named after her because she gave me the love of movies. I, I would not have uh, appreciated, I would not have uh, uh, understood the, the artistry within a film uh, if it wasn't for Denise, who as uh, a, a child, she took me to the movie almost every week. We would take the bus uh, down to the Lakewood or the Cerritos Mall and we would watch films and uh, we would talk about them afterward. Well, I would talk about them and she would listen <laughs> and um, and just, you know, opened up a whole new world to me. That's how movies became a window to the world, you know, seeing films early on about people who are not like me it was not by choice. There, there were not a lot of films about yeah, right. people like me, right? right. Um, so, you know, it was a steady diet of of observing and watching people who are outside of my world. And I think that's why I'm, I'm so interested in trying to, to show more of what was inside my world. Now, it sounds like going through school, you had another, like, kind of just a varied uh, experiences as a kid, right? Where were you did I read that you went to like kind of a, a all girl Catholic yeah. school? All girls Catholic school, gray wool skirts, navy blue sweaters. Mm-hmm. That was every day uh, for the four years of high school. And then also I went to Catholic school with uniforms and and nuns uh, from the first grade to the eighth grade. I'm a good girl, Scott. Yeah. <laughs> I'm a good girl. I heard you were a, a trailblazer even then. Is it true? First black homecoming queen? Wait, this research is going to First too deep. black student president? That's this research is going too deep. <laughs> you know some people, but yes. Wow. <laughs> yeah. So okay, so 
even before there was any interest in um, making films, before there was interest in a lot of maybe anything like specifically about uh, for a profession, there was a kind of uh, social conscience about you know. I think this connects back to Denise from what I've read, where you're talking about, was it Amnesty International? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. What was that about? Well, I remember she took me, she loved music, too. Yeah. And she took me to my first big concert. It was the Amnesty International concert. I believe it was at the um, the, uh, Coliseum. Okay. And um, I remember when you walked in, they gave you a little, I wish I still had it. I I kept it for so long, a small pamphlet, um, got about the size of a business card that had, uh, that listed out your human rights. And I remember first, wow, I get something. I mean, you're just a kid. (laughs) You're like, I get my own pamphlet. It's like, gosh, (laughs) I get something for free. But then also it had the Amnesty International logo. And and then there was this concert and she said, listen to this song that, that that these guys are about to play. They're talking about Dr. King. And I was like, they're talking about Dr. King? And these four White rock stars who I did not know got up and they sang Pride in the Name of Love. Uh-huh. That started my love affair with you too. <laughs> and um, and opened up my world to, um, you know, the idea that there is a sense of justice that must be uh, reached for, worked for. Um, it can't, you can't just dream about it, think about it, or, or assume that it'll be granted. You have to do the work. And so the, maybe out of that, the idea was originally be a lawyer? Oh yeah, I, I, was, I was definitely a lawyer, and I, already a lawyer in high school. In mind, <laughs> I was litigating and prosecuting and doing all the things, debating, debating yeah, yeah. all the things. Yes, yeah. so that was. I went into um, in my high school years. I thought that would be the case. And when I got to UCLA, I was an African American and African American studies and English major, mm-hmm. and um, started to veer more towards you know art and the written word, and uh, and became interested in journalism. So UCLA had a history of producing many great filmmakers, but also specifically, right, a lot of the the, the black filmmakers who have who kind of paved the way and yeah. who I know are heroes of yours. I they I think it's now, you know, largely grouped as the Los Angeles School of Black Filmmakers or the LA Rebellion, Haile Garima, Charles Burnett, Julie Dash. Was that something that you were aware of? No. Yeah. Isn't that crazy? I mean, you know, Mr. Garima, his, uh, we released Sankofa, re-released Sankofa. I remember. And had a big celebration for him here on campus. And, uh, and, you know, Miss Dash, you know, has directed Queen Sugar, you know, and has been uh, just instrumental in in my thinking. And, you know, Charles Burnett, I mean, these were, these were people who were right there. They're cadre of filmmakers known as the LA Rebellion. And they, um, they were not um, in my on my radar at that time, which really goes to to show that for a long time that group was just under amplified. You know, folks just did not know um, in a, in a in a in a in a mainstream way that they existed or what the work was. That's changed, yeah. uh, which I'm, I'm well. Proud. You're a big part of that. I'm happy about that, yeah. but I I wasn't aware at the time. And so film itself was not even no, on I, the radar for I you. I didn't even walk past that film school. <laughs> I, it was on the other side of campus. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. It was too far. So, but you were you were pretty busy there. What were some of the things you did at UCLA? 
I was uh, I wrote for the for the black student um, news magazine. I, you know, frequented a lot of the, you know, hip hop open mic nights in and around L.A. Uh, I worked at a, as a waitress at a uh, soul food uh, spot that was very popular in L.A. called Aunt Kizzy's Back Porch, uh, where I made a lot of money. And would blow it every week <laughs> on getting my hair done and my nails done to impress my boyfriend who was uh, on the basketball team. Okay, all right. uh, These were the things that were of, in priorities, my mind. Yeah. Priorities when you're in high school, <laughs> when you're in college. Yeah. Um, but those, those things started to shift around, you know, 92. It was a very intense time yeah. in our city, especially with tensions between the police and the black community. And I started to kind of grow up really quickly and move out of those kind of frivolous thoughts into feeling uh, activated yeah, and really learning more about uh, you know, our history, but also contemporary issues that affected people of color in the city. So if the 92 situation was, was one big turning point, I think it was 95 when another big <laughs> flashpoint happened with starting with a uh, Bronco oh, chase. Oh, Bronco right? chase. <laughs> Very well done. I love this interview so far. Well, thank you. And and tell me, because you managed to play a role in that whole situation. I know. Well, play a role. Is, is, <laughs> like, that sounds like you were involved. Yeah, Let's just yeah, play a role. <laughs> you, is, there's, there's new clickbait headlines in that. Um, driving the Bronco. Right, no. right, right. No, I was, uh, I, 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 at that time, had veered from wanting to be a lawyer to d d deciding that I was going to produce broadcast news. That's what I wanted to do. Why did you make that pivot? I was just, I just, I don't know what, it, I became interested in the idea of traveling the world yeah. and bringing the truth to people, right? And I didn't want to be the person talking on screen. I wanted to be the person, you know, finding the story and building the story and kind of, so I was, I was excited to do that. And so I, you know, fought for and got this very prestigious internship at the CBS Evening News with Dan Rather and Connie Chung. It was a short tenure. Um, and during that time, the, 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 the trial started, and I remember my packet with the CBS News, West Coast Bureau, my badge, all the things. I was just like, a few short steps to glory. Yeah. This is going to happen for me. And so I was a, a, an intern, and I was assigned to a juror. I was like, wow, this is going to be interesting. I'm going to research them. I'm like, what am I doing? And I was assigned to sit outside of their house and see who came. And it was suggested that if I wanted to look through the trash, I could. <laughs> and I thought, hmm. That's not what I signed up for. Not what yeah. I was thinking this would be. But, you know, when you, to be fair, at that time, when you trace back, that was really a time of kind of the celebrityization of news, right? Where it became a little bit more salacious and paparazzi were the thing. And um, so I quickly turned away from that. Okay. So the idea, I don't know if, Many people know this, but you, your first involvement in the world of film, Hollywood, anything like that was as a publicist. Where did that idea even come from? Was that being around? I imagine that there were, as the OJ stuff was going on, you had all these characters who were kind of uh, looking to get their five minutes of fame related to that. Somebody's friend, somebody's, you know, Kato Kalin, whatever. <laughs> and they had publicists. Is that where the idea no, came from? You know what? It, it came from what when you really trace back how most people in this world end up doing what they do for a living, mm -hmm. what job can you get when it's time to get a job? Purely. Mm -hmm. 
I didn't want to be a journalist anymore. I didn't feel like that was something I wanted to pursue. I went to the Career Center, and I was looking for a job, and there was a post Wow! for a publicity assistant, a few publicity assistants. Yeah. And someone had told me, oh, if you're interested in news, there's another side of news. You yeah. can pitch the news instead of produce the news. So I was kind of looking in PR, and I had applied to, like, mun- municipalities. Like, you'd be a publicist for the gas company or corporate communications for this. I had had a, a, a big interview process with the NBA for their publicity department um, and ended up getting a PR job at a small studio um, and uh, and falling in love with it. So this is, you graduated in 95, then Bender Helper Impact? Yeah, my yeah. goodness. I don't know what we oh got to get. This is the, we got to cover the key. This, re- that. Fox? Or was that a consult? Did you, got, you kind of consult with Fox or you worked at Fox? I worked at Fox for a quick second. M- yeah. MPRM was? Was next. Yeah. Okay. And then so at 27, you you start your own thing. Yeah, this yeah. is 1999, the DuVernay Agency. What was the, I mean, to go off on your own at any point, but as a young, young person, I know. Uh, that's a gamble. What made you decide to do that? No clue what she was doing. <laughs> I don't understand. When I think of the confidence, the it's not. It, I was naive, you know. I I tried it twice. I did it the first time and it didn't work. I didn't. I was not able to, um, you know. Before I even went to NPRM, mm-hmm. I start. I tried it. Uh, after I left Bender Helper Impact, mm-hmm. I thought, oh, I got it. I know how to do this, right? <laughs> what are you talking about? And so I went out on my own. I got a couple of clients and they weren't enough to keep the lights on. Yeah, yeah. So I went into, did a consultancy at Fox. And then I went into NPRM. And when I left NPRM, I, I took a few clients. Uh, I learned a lot there from from those folks, Mark Pogoczewski and Rachel McAllister and Laura Kim. Yeah, really yeah. wonderful people and really learned the practice of, of PR and crafting that and the relationships. And so when I left there and opened the DuVernay Agency in and in, uh, when I was 27, yeah. um, I, clients came with me and it just took off. And was there a specific kind of publicity you would do? Was it primarily personal project. or project? No, I've personal. Yeah. <laughs> God bless them. Right. I look at them and I just like, God bless you. What are you doing? How you do have you a do lot it? Of patience. I don't even yeah, know. Right. I don't even know. I did project publicity. Right. So at the time, people who remember home videos, it was mm-hmm. a big deal. Studios were spending tons of money on these home video campaigns to relaunch a film into the home video marketplace. Home videos, DVDs, and theatrical campaigns. I did um, unit publicity. So I was on set while the film was being made. I did release publicity. I did premiere publicity. I did all things. Um, and I'm like your grandmother, you know, <laughs> you're an actor. You come to me for the time of your film. Yeah. We don't really talk because your parents in the middle, your personal publicist. Right. I don't really have to deal with you except, right. you know, it's the junket. I see you at the premiere. You have a question. We have a good time. And then I send you home. Right. To your, but what that did is it gave me a proximity to actors. Right. And so I had a, I, I, I felt comfortable talking to actors, which um, is one of the big things that emerging filmmakers fear. I they totally, fear the camera and yeah. they fear, what do I say to these people? We're, we're talking this week with Michelle Satter from the Sundance Institute, mm. who's about to get an yes. honorary Oscar. And she was, I've, I've been reading, you know, her stuff. She's like, the main thing that people come to the directing lab scared of is how do I work with actors? Wow. So you're, yeah. you got a head start there. Uh, now, you talk about a specific like turning point in somebody's life, it sounds like there really was like a almost an epiphany one night when you're on set. It sounds like as a, a unit publicist yeah. at this point for, uh, well, let me turn it over to you. You're saying it, a unit publicist for the film Collateral directed by Michael Mann. Um, 
And, you know, I'd been on many sets before, but there was something about that set. It was a lot of night shoots, all night shoots, basically. Uh, and they were shooting with digital cameras, which I had not seen used uh, in every frame of a film. And and that created a, an energy, kind of like a faster process. Also, it was breaking a lot. And so they were like kind of arguing, <laughs> which I don't tell that part of the yeah. story very much. And, you know, Michael... He's not a quiet arguer. No. You know what I mean? <laughs> you could hear what was being right, said. Right. And um, and I just loved his energy, you know? He just kind of got this, I tell you, he's kind of like grouchy, like, you know, but come on, let's do it. I just, I loved it. I was just like, he would he would want to shoot and want to go so badly and want to make things happen. I, I would feel like, I let me help you. Should I jump in? Right. Can I hold this? Right. Like, what can I do to make this right. happen? And it was Tom Cruise and Javier Bardem and Jamie Foxx and Jada Pinkett and Mark Ruffalo and just an incredible cast. And, and I just, uh, and they were shooting in areas that I knew in LA, black and brown communities. So anyway, something on that made me think, oh, maybe I can make stuff. And so that is 2003. Where do you go from there? Okay, I want to do it now. I think I can do it, but I didn't study film at school. I don't necessarily, I, I guess, know equipment at that point or things like that. What's the next step? Well, I just want to point out, I said, I think I can make stuff. I never said, I think I can be a professional filmmaker and have, make a living. Yeah. Or I think I can become known for a certain kind of film or make something. I, I think I can make some stuff. Mm -hmm. I want to try to make some stuff, right? And, um, and so that was a, a much lower bar. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. And it, there were eight more years when you were still Just, being yeah. a publicist but doing things on the yeah. side. Yeah, yeah. So I'm going to tee up some of the earlier ones that people may not have seen as widely as your more recent films and just ask you to tell me a little bit Saturday Night Life this is 2006 a short I get that I believe it's sort of connected to your mother yeah yeah and this was the first time you yeah. made something so. yeah that was the first time I made something so yeah so it, 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 I didn't know what the span was between the the um someone asked me the other day what was the time between collateral and the first piece so three years it looks like well it came your Saturday Night Life, it looks like, was out in, out, 2006. in 2006. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Scott Feinberg, uh, <laughs> researcher extraordinaire. Thank you, sir. Um, yeah, no, it was, it was, the, the, the seed started there and that, it was a short film. I said, told my mom I wanted to try to make a short. Mm -hmm. I needed to come up with something in one location because I read somewhere that, you know, if you don't move, you save money. Yeah. And in that two years, I was 
watching a ton of DVD commentaries, reading a ton of books on filmmaking and taking classes at UCLA Extension, which were these classes, I don't know if they still have them, but you can do weekend classes, yeah, like yeah. a weekend class on how to block with actors, a weekend class on how to move, you know, work with a dahlia, you know, these little, and they were like $200, $300. And so I kind of pieced together that film school experience. And I also took uh, directing for actor classes with a woman named Judith Wesson. Yeah. So I, I did that. Um, that Weston. So I did that for that couple years. And then I decided I was going to, I don't know, figure out someone who could shoot this. So I remember looking for a DP and, uh, and coming up with the story that my mom had told me about one uh, night when she was feeling particularly down. She dressed me and my two sisters up in our Sunday's finest and patent leather shoes and, and, and greased us up. Our hair was perfect. Our barrettes were in, our little dresses, our little Vaseline faces. And we walked into a grocery store with her and she did it on purpose so that people would say, oh my gosh, you girls are so pretty. Oh my goodness. You're taking such good care of them. You're doing this, such a great job because in hard times, that was something that she needed that yeah. boosted her confidence. And so she told me that story and I was like, one location, a grocery store. Yeah. And um, so that's, it's a sweet little story that now cannot be found anywhere because it only exists in my drawer. And you don't want people to see it? I haven't looked at it in 15 years. Okay. But no, probably but it's not. Amazing. So the way it was even possible, where did, where did the $6,000 come from? I was, I had a PR firm, right. you so know, you're so, you're just re so, I, so yeah, I'm, I'm, I, you know, I was, I had a little bit of money. I had a, a good business going. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And so, but it's interesting just because as a m model to whatever extent somebody can, just as an example of how this comes together, it's in, like these early projects. Okay. So one does a little bit well, then you put that into the next one. Let's, yeah. So the, the next one was, I think your first documentary a year yeah. later, Compton and C minor. What can you tell us about? That, that was another little, a little, a little doc. I was trying to play with doc, mm -hmm. and because I'd heard somewhere that docs are cheap, yeah. And um, so I made a little doc, a, a very kind of impressionistic doc. There was, it, it was just showing the beauty of Compton. And so you know, there's a there's a huge equestrian community in Compton that a lot of people don't know about, where there's stables and horses and a whole community where horses roam the street. People don't know about that space. No. So it was a lot around that and just other different things that folks don't associate with Compton. So it was a small, a small doc. One of the many ones that I submitted to Sundance that didn't make it in. In the early years. In the yeah. early years. Yeah. And then I made a feature doc um, called This, this is, is the Life. life. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Now, okay, so this one, we're now getting to a slightly bigger scale, right? You're, I think you said it was like $10,000 and uh, about LA's hip hop movement in the early 90s, which, fun fact, who is MC Eve? <laughs> well, Eve was my 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 moniker before. There's an Eve that is very famous, yes, but yes. before that, there was an Eve who was not very famous, <laughs> who was me uh, in LA. And so it was an independent, like very um, uh, kind of they call it backpack rap, uh, very kind of uh, artsy, esoteric uh, uh, expression uh, of hip hop at that time. And it was a whole cadre of of of, of artists that many are still working today. It was just a vibrant, gorgeous time. So I made a documentary about them. About the, the scene of... About the scene, which yeah. I participated yeah, in yeah. when I was in college. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. A few more documentaries around that time. Uh, in particular, I guess my mic sounds That's nice. the first time someone gave me money to make a, mo make a movie. This I didn't use my own. BET. Yeah, they gave me... I, I'll always be grateful. And also your first time with Bradford Young. 
First time with Brad. Yep. Where did, how did that come about? This I'd was your seen, cinematographer for many of your projects. Yeah. So I, I was a publicist, so I was taking films to Sundance. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I had been to Sundance seven times as a publicist before I'd ever been there as a filmmaker. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, isn't that crazy? Uh, yeah. So I, um, I had seen Pariah when I was there a year, a year before. The short or the feature? The, the feature. The feature, okay. Mm-hmm. And uh, was like, you know, obviously blown away by Dee Reese's artistry and Bradford's collaboration with her. And so I'd asked him to shoot I Will Follow. Um, he was busy, he couldn't shoot it, but we kept in touch. And so eventually um, uh, uh, was able to, to grab him and he shot My Mic Sounds Nice and then eventually Middle of Nowhere. So... I Will Follow, though, is the first feature, which was also 2010. And this one comes back to Aunt Denise, right? It's sort of as yeah, an inspiration. That's right. Yeah. It was about Aunt Denise. Um, and it was about the the time that we spent together when she was diagnosed with breast cancer. Um, before she passed away, I moved us into a house together in a part of town that she always loved in Long Beach. And, um, and so I Will Follow is another idea of how can you make a movie with very little money, find one location and don't move. Um, and so uh, I Will Follow is all about the day um, that I that I moved out of the house that I shared with her. So you watch Sally Richardson Whitfield as she's moving out of a home that she shared, and through flashbacks you understand the relationship. The relationship, yeah. and so uh, uh, I guess the first, well, these others I'm sure they're they're personal aspects, but that's pretty yeah. personal. Yeah, very. Um, Fifty thousand dollar budget, eleven days. Is that yes. right? Okay. Now, just to talk about, you know. Doing whatever, you know, making it happen. How did Blair Underwood end up in that movie? I represented the film City, the show City of Angels for CBS. Right. And like I said, I was a publicist. Right. I'm your grandmother. I don't have to deal with all of the, the hard stuff. Right. I just see you on set. And so we had a very nice, nice relationship. I, I worked on a couple little films that he did. And um, and he, he just became someone who I, I had a, a, a nice rapport with. So I called him up and I said, this is probably a little strange, <laughs> but I am making a feature film. I can't, I, I, I can't believe to this day. I talked to him maybe two, year, two days ago. He rang me. I cannot believe that he said yes. And I can't believe, I remember he walked into, this makeshift set. It was like a part of my office that we had made into a bedroom yeah. that he had to be in. And uh, and he treated me like a real director. He asked, he changed his clothes in the bathroom. He was hung up on the thing. There was no department head. There was no nothing. He, uh, someone came over and tried to put some powder on him. He held his face and let them do it. Um, he had the bag of Doritos and the El Pollo local that were on the table because that was our craft services. And he took Whatever horrible direction I gave him, <laughs> and um, and and he and he played with me, you know. I mean, he he was there. I always. That's a friend. Yeah. I always. I'll be grateful. Now, this is the first movie that probably was widely seen by people in the. Maybe even widely is overstating seen. it. Widely but like seen. I squinted when you <laughs> yeah, said no, no, no. widely. Well, but I mean, so. How big a deal? Your movie goes to AFI Fest, right? Yeah, yeah. That's the first. That's, that was big. That was big. And that's why I always, you know, when you look at AFI Fest and you look at some of these festivals and we always focus on the, the big names and the Oscar bait and all right. that stuff that's there. Remember, remember, there are films actually playing in festival um, from filmmakers that are just, they're, they're the next ones. Yeah, yeah. So you have to go and you have to see those films. And so I was one of those that year. How did, how did that movie, I Will Follow, get out to the rest of the world? 
Um, it, it really was amplified through Roger Ebert. But even just logistic, that's true. And oh, he had how did said, I, do, I Yeah. I mean, he, I'm trying to find the quote, but he loved it. Yeah, he loved it. And loved many of your films. But where we are today connects back to that, right? Yeah, I, I self-distributed. And yeah. back then, that was African-American I, Film Re- Festival releasing movement, which became Array. Yeah. But what was the what sparked that idea? Yeah, well, the idea was what sparked it was no one's going to put out your movie, lady, right? Like you're you're what thirty something early thirties filmmaker making film about a black woman protagonist dealing with her grief and um, that there's there's nobody that's going to put that out. Um, but I knew all of these beautiful film festivals around the country, black film festivals a major one in every city that had packed screenings and robust lists of moviegoers who paid for tickets. And I started to think entrepreneurially Mm -hmm. in the way that my father, who would go out every morning in the truck, like, why don't you, probably the same spirit that started a PR firm at 27. Right. Why don't I do it myself? Mm -hmm. And so I called up all of these PR, all of these festivals. And I said, what if we all work together? Do you all even know each other? They didn't. Mm. What if we all called ourselves one things and we put out films? I, you know, you put it out in L.A., you put it out in New York, you put it out in Seattle and Boston and whatever. On the same day, I'll make the posters. I'll do the national publicity. I know how to do that. And um, and and we'll just try it. And we did. And we work. And it worked that way. And so it was called Affirm, the African-American Film Festival Releasing Movement, yeah. which became a ray. And we still do it to this day for, for filmmakers. Amazing. And so— uh and you'll not only now do it for new releases, but even great movies that didn't get there do. Yeah, like, like Sankofa. Right. Yeah, Mr. Grima's film. So Middle of Nowhere was possible because I Will Follow made money, right? That's right. We wrote that money into the next one. And Middle of Nowhere, though, had predated. Middle of Nowhere, was that the f- actually before almost anything we've talked about, you had come up with that, right? It just went in a drawer. Yeah. Yeah, like, yeah. doesn't it? It's, it's Middle like, of Nowhere was the first film I ever wrote. Is that what that, you mean? Yeah, like yeah. in the sense that when you were first, all right, I want to be a filmmaker, but before you know the docs, before uh, I will follow. This was this was there, but you just didn't make it until after. I didn't make it until after. I didn't know how to make it. Yeah. Right. I didn't know how to put together a film like that. I didn't. Um, I didn't have the money to do it. Um, and so yeah, it was rolling over some money from. From I Will Follow, it was using, um, uh, I had a, a, a landlord um, in the building that I was in who had a, a commercial production company downstairs. And his equipment is what I made I Will Follow and Middle of Nowhere on. Wow. And so he was a producer on the film. And we, we raised a little bit of money, but basically we made that film for $250,000. I remember thinking, oh, $250,000. <laughs> This is going to be something special. But it was $250,000 in Bradford Young. Yeah. And that may, makes your $250,000 look like. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So this is just, this was the, for me, somehow I didn't in the moment know about I Will Follow. But then I did know about Middle of Nowhere, which because of what we'll talk about in a minute about Sundance. But uh, a woman whose husband has been incarcerated for eight years or has got an eight-year sentence and has to figure out what she's going to do with her life. This was obviously the first but not the last time you're looking at uh, the the prison industrial complex and how it affects black people and uh, all of that. But what, what at one point I had seen a quote where you said, um, 
I think there was like somebody that you knew who was going, I'm sure probably a lot of people mm-hmm. in the community have gone, yeah. but like, what made you want to do that uh, subject matter as a narrative? Well, I just, I had experienced it growing up, not within my family, which is an extraordinary thing, um, but with people uh, in, in my neighborhood, across the street, in school, where, like, where's your brother? I haven't seen him in a while. Well, he's locked up. You know, where's your, where, where's your, where's your mom? I, you know, oh, she's just locked up. I mean, just people who just disappeared. And it always, you know, fascinated me, the people who are left behind. And so I was really interested in the people that I knew who were living kind of a shell of their life, just a, a, a shadow of what their life could be because they were waiting on someone or they were doing time with someone. Right. And I hadn't, I hadn't seen that um, portrayed on screen. And so, uh, you enter, you know, having, you've seen that in your own life. You then go and interview, I guess, a lot of people who yeah, were yeah, in that situation. Yeah. You write the script. Now you got to cast it. And it's interesting because Emma Yatsi, yeah. had not starred in a film before, right? Yeah. Uh, and then the other absolutely insane in part, how did you first connect with David Oyelowo? Right. Well, Imiazzi Coronaldi is is a a, a star, yeah. and she had a star quality the minute she walked into the audition room, and um, and I'm so fortunate she gave such a sensitive, gorgeous performance in that. Um, David Oyelowo, and then Omari Hardwick, who is in I Will Follow, and uh, also in Middle of Nowhere, figured in really, really prominently to both films. I'm grateful to him. David Oyelowo invited himself on the movie. Yes. Okay, nobody was thinking about David Oyelowo, okay? I certainly knew who he was, but I thought way too outside of anything I can get to. First of all, he's British. That's intimidating. I don't know how to reach you. Where are you, in London? What are, how are we doing right. this? The second thing is he was... He had like small, memorable parts in major films, big movies. At that point, I think Lincoln was that same year, right? Lincoln. And, yeah. I mean, you're working with Spielberg. Yeah, what right. am I doing? Right. Calling and asking to be in my $250,000 movie? Right. So I certainly was aware of him, but he was not at all in the realm of anyone I even knew how to reach or touch. Turns out he lived three blocks away from my no. office in the Valley. Oh, yeah. So he had been on a plane. He was on a plane with a man who was reading a script from Middle of Nowhere. Why was he reading the script? Because the landlord, right, in the building who that I who it was who gave me the equipment and, and helped me raise a little bit of money had given that script to this man, uh, who's a Canadian man. He was on his way to Toronto. David is sitting with him on his way to do looping for Planet of the Apes in Toronto. Mm-hmm. They get to talking. Even that way, right? How do what? Why did they get to talking? They get to talking because you you know the story. <laughs> well, but it's Scott. crazy. It's a crazy story. It changes my life. Right. This chance that's meeting. That's why I'm. That's why I'm back. Yeah, right let's here. get it. Yeah, let's yeah, get it yeah, down. Yeah, let's yeah. get it right. David Oyelowo, who is an actor, who's a Shakespearean stage, and and all of that. He's coming out. He's in LA. He's trying to do his thing. He's doing well. He's got Planet of the Apes. He's got Lincoln. He's got that thing with Tom Cruise. Yep. He's got like one great scene. Like he's the black guy who's doing the great thing in the big movies. It's <laughs> right. really what he was doing. Yeah. And but he's always been scrappy. Always been a producer. Always been that kind of I'm going to do more in instinct. And so he's sitting next to a man on a plane who is watching an episode of a show called Spooks. Spooks was a show that David appeared on in the UK. The man looks at David and says, is this you? (laughs) On his laptop, David's like, yeah, yeah, it's me. (laughs) 
Uh, and, you know, David, most gracious, the accent, the gentlemanliness, all that strikes up a conversation. The man takes out middle of nowhere out of his bag and says, I was given the script. You're an actor. What do you think about investing in movies? David looks at the script and sees my name. Why does David know my name? There's no reason why David should know my name, except that three days earlier I was on CNN talking about I will follow and my distribution model using African-American film festivals to distribute films. He saw that, recognized the name, and said, may I read the script? Read the script, invited the guy out to a steak dinner afterward. They got to talking, convinced the guy to invest in the movie, Convinced him to invest in the movie. <laughs> Scott's eyes got big. <laughs> then called me, because I had my number on the script, and said, hi, my name is David Oyelowo. Um, I'm an actor. Very sweet. I'm an actor, and I would, I would love it if you could consider me for any part that might be available in your beautiful film. That was the call. So just let's think about if those two guys had been on different flights, how different would your life be? My whole been? life would have been different. There would be no Selma. Right. There would be no David in my life as such a great friend. Because David in, in Middle of Nowhere ends up playing the bus driver who she, there's also a chance it. of yes. a second yes. love. And and then we'll come to how, the again, just insane how that factors into Selma. But first, this movie goes to Sundance and... I finally make it in. You finally make After it in. After like nine attempts. <laughs> yes. And... Not only make it in, win Best Director. Yes. Um, which was the first time that had happened with a uh, for a black woman. You have talked about that as a num in a number of ways. Okay, on one level, a big deal, obviously. On another level, uncomfortable because I guess you you said it's like not like other people weren't mm-hmm. also worthy. But then also the aftermath. What was the at? Did that lead to a barrage of yes. opportunities and things like that? Tell so. No, 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 it didn't. Yeah, it's bittersweet. Yes, it's the sweetness of of just any filmmaker winning any award and someone saying what you've done is is worthy of acknowledgement and congratulations. I mean, that is that's not lost on you. That's that means something to to an artist. But on the other hand, with, with when you attach the first to it, and it's you know. Movies have been made for almost 100 years at that point. You know, it's kind of like, is it that good? Like, was there nothing before me that was worthy of, of any attention? We certainly know that's, that, 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 that that is the case, that there should have been a lot more acknowledgement, that there was an absence there, that there was an error made. Um, and so that that has to be a part of any kind of dealing with that. And then on the other hand, you know, I came out of it, I'm naive. I'm a publicist, you know, so I'm really won that award and still had my firm. And so I had to think, wow, if there's any time that I'm going to put away the PR and try to do this full time, it would be now when I've won this award, when, you know, I'm going to do the the, the water bottle tour, as they call it. You'll go to all the studios, they will give you water. (laughs) And you will leave with only water. Right. But they have to meet you because I don't know. That's what they do. You're meeting with the agents, you're meeting with the studios, and you're you're doing that process. And so, but I said, well, let me let me try. So I gave away my clients to other publicists, and I um and I I tried to be a full time filmmaker, thinking that that award was going to open doors. But it, it didn't quite open doors for me. That award has opened doors for other people, and it's when I really started to see oh. This is going to be a different experience. I'm trying to remember who distributed Middle of Nowhere. All right. Um, a firm. So you guys did it. Yeah, again. a firm. 
Yeah, and we we got a little bit of uh, uh, support and PNA from Participant, okay. Media, which is we did a partnership. And this movie opens in limited release and has a huge audience. Wow, you really researched. Know, you it did it. really well. I, I mean, know, this the is the highest per screen of the weekend against like Argo Studio Films. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Studio Films. So, uh, okay, so now you're th- you had thought this is gonna be. All right, now easier. This is gonna everything's gonna happen now. Yeah. It didn't. I see around that time you did you directed an episode of Scandal, which I imagine it's might have deal. come out of that probably. Yeah, you had a higher profile. Higher profile was a big deal. Um I, I didn't get offered any movies. Counterparts who'd won different awards um uh that year had yes. you know, got big offers and did big things. And so you kind of see other people passing you by. But I was grateful for that episode of Scandal, Shonda. Had reached out through a, a, a man named Tom Verica, uh, who, and I remember getting that call and being invited to Scandal was the biggest show. I was a huge fan. So to be able to get a chance to direct that and just to direct something with other people's money was yeah. exciting with actors who, who I'd, I'd watched on television. So that was a big deal. And then Prada called and they offered me a fashion film said, hey, here's some money. If you Can you make a movie if you and include, include our clothes? And so they had started this beautiful thing called uh, Mew Mew Women's Tales. Mm-hmm. And I made a, a piece with Gabrielle Union for that. Still probably one of my favorite pieces I've done. Bradford shot that as well. Mm-hmm. And uh, and then I made a, I got a call from ESPN. Uh, yes. And I made an, another documentary about Venus Williams. Venus Williams. Yeah. Okay. So it is clear at that point, though, that you're going to have to make the next thing happen. The big next big thing is going to be because you made it happen, not because somebody else uh, is coming to you with a big movie to do it because of Sundance. Oh, it was or, clear to me that something was going to have to happen, that I wasn't in the in the, in the the space where studios were going to be offering me movies. I'm still not in that place, um, but studios are going to be offering me movies. And so, you know, um, Selma came about because of David. So that's Let's just go. Let's give a little quick. And just, the man on the plane. I need to find that guy. We, I know that he guy. He changed my life. We ha- Does David remember? I don't it? know. We we'll need to, to track find, him yeah. down. Wow. <laughs> it would be great. If so, and here he is. There he is. God, <laughs> Oh, my gosh. How are you pulling this off? Well, yeah. so Selma, though, this story is almost as crazy as the plane story because this movie's around since 2007. It's when it appears on the blacklist of best unproduced scripts, right? But- that script and a lot of things changed over, right? So Michael Mann, Stephen Frears, Paul Haggis, Spike Lee, Lee Daniels. These are all the people who I believe, I believe that's the full list, weren't at one point going to do this before it comes to you. But you were, this is the part that I don't even remember knowing when we were doing like Q&As around the time of Selma and stuff like that. Like you actually were involved with the movie before you were ever involved as a director. Right. That's funny. Where'd you get that from? I think I said that to one person 99 years ago. <laughs> this is really well researched. Well, I'm impressed. Thank you. I'm impressed. Thank you. I have somewhere in my files my publicity contract. I had signed on. I had gotten a call about doing publicity for this film years before. And being on the film as a publicist, like, we're we're reserving you when this starts. Can you do unit? Yes, I can do the unit. Can you do the, the African-American specialty? Yes, I can do all that. So I have a contract. I was the publicist for the film before I was the director for the film. And this is when Lee was directing it? I, I believe it was Lee's iteration. I'm not sure. I think it was an iteration before. Or maybe Lee. even before, because here's I what was, I read. You can tell me if it's not it's, correct. Yeah. But that 
I guess, so Path A ended up making it even when you did it, but before their thing was like, we need to reach out to the King family. Uh-huh. Is that right? That you were going to be like an intermediary between yes, them and the yes, King you're family? Right. Oh my gosh, you're right. Yes. It, the, yes. This is making sense. Because as I was talking, I was like, wow, they had me on really early. They had me on really early. They wanted to bring on a black publicist to be a intermediary. And I also was going to do all these other things, but I was, that's why I was on early. I was on early because I was going to liaise with the family. And one of the challenges that everyone- (laughs) I forgot about it. (laughs) Holy snacks. But like everyone from, from back then through even when you're subsequently for reasons we'll explain with David, like you, when you even came on board, a, a complication of this, probably why it took seven years to come from the blacklist to screens is the whole idea that the actual speeches of Dr. King were not available, right? Like this, they're copyrighted and other people had rights to his full life story. Is that right? And Other people had rights and one filmmaker had the cinematic rights, the movie rights to them. And, and so that filmmaker is very massive and very famous and there was no way I was getting them. And that was to tell a tr- full biopic as opposed yeah. to a chapter of yes, his life. Yes, yes, yes. And so, okay, how do now? Now David comes back into this. David. David had been involved when Lee, or was attached when Lee with Daniels was Lee still Daniels directed. cast date. So Lee Daniels is is the latest in the in the in the list of filmmakers. To Lee Daniels is hot, 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 and he's going to do it. And um, the way uh, and he cast David as his king. David, if you don't know David, <laughs> he's 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 an incredible producer. If you really look at his CV and see how many films and independents and TV shows he's produced, it's produced in some, it's, it's really incredible. But he is a hands-on, true, not just an actor attaching your name to the thing, give me the credit, a real producer. He's raising the money. He's figuring out the permits. He's, he's a real guy. And he, um, when Lee Daniels left the project, because the budget wasn't moving, um, Imagine the audacity. <laughs> the actor is like, well, I need to find someone who's going to keep me as king. Keep me, yeah. Because his dream, and he knew in his heart that he was to play king. This British actor. This British actor right. had always known that it's he was It's only fair. Going. I mean, Daniel Day-Lewis played uh, Lincoln. Yeah, you know? why, not? why not? You know? Yep. And so he set out to find a director and, and, and replace himself and, you know, make sure that he stayed to yeah, be king. Yeah, yeah. And so how smart? Well, I'm going to, I'm going to, before they can get someone who doesn't want me to be king, I'm going to bring them someone who does. And also I have to fix the idea that it's someone who can work within the small budget. Which is $20 million rather than $250,000, yeah. 250, yeah. which is what you're coming off of. So he, 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 I just won Sundance. I had that little thing that he could say. I, um, I was used to working with small budgets. He talks to me about $20 million. I almost faint. $20 million? <laughs> Wait, did you say two, zero, and million? Yes, I can do it. Right. God, I mean, really? And and he goes to them and says, look, I know someone, it's a woman, a black woman. She just won Sundance. She's excited about it. Her father is from, from, from Alabama. She can write. She can get this on board. You, you're, he hard pitches me. 
And in one phone call, I get the job. That's amazing. And did you, who told you, did he tell you or did yes, somebody else? Yes, he, he told me. He became, the fact that he does not have a producer credit on that movie is is criminal and not right. Well, there's another. he put that together. There's another uh, missing credit on that movie, I think. <laughs> Facts. Um, so just because of, again, the, the challenge, maybe in some ways the biggest challenge, at least in pre-production, I guess, is that how do you tell a story of Dr. King without his own words? What was, how did you get, how did you, so you're, you get the existing script and what was your, what was your hurdle? My existing script was certainly that there was no oratory from the greatest orator in, uh, you know, modern history. And also, so he's never speaking. He's never making a speech. I just don't even know how that's going to work. And secondly, there were no black people in it. I was like, hmm, Wait, gosh, guys. Uh, I mean, you know, to the extent that the, 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 the life and breadth and scope and majesty of African-American people for whom this is being, this, this struggle is being waged, their humanity, their dignity are missing in a meaningful way from the script. And I am invited to take a pass, a production pass, and I then change the scope of it and and bring in those characters and create the environment, bring the story out of the White House into Selma proper and create character and scene and propulsive activity around a group of people who decided to change the world and did so, and also created scenarios and wrote speeches that sounded like Dr. King. Um, so I re- I would define that as rewriting the script and um, and turned that in. And with the budget by Paul Garns, my producing partner, who I produced Origin with. And that's what we did. We made that, that, that script um, and we adhered to that budget. And that's what some is. Why, why are you not credited? I'm not credited because um, I was not a Guild member. And the credited writer was not a Guild member. And so it was outside of an arbitration scenario. The Guild could do nothing. And the producers of record, outside of Oprah Winfrey, who was the only one who fought hard, um, the producers of record um, said, well, we've got to go by the paperwork. And so, and the personal appeals to the writer who had had the sole credit to say, Sir, this is not your script. Why don't we do a co-write? Like, you know, why don't, written by both. No appeals to that worked. And he decided to take the sole credit. So he put his name on my work and it exists there to this day. Wow. Well, you mentioned Oprah. Oprah was in the can, I guess, through David, you meet her and she becomes a part of the, that's your first time dealing with Oprah? That's my first time dealing with. I don't mean dealing with. Encountering. Encountering, (laughs) yes. Yes, David had worked. There's a crazy story now that I told you like this. Yeah, yeah. David ended up working with Lee Daniels. The butler. In the butler. Right. And in the butler, Lee Daniels, who was the the director who departed from Selma, so I could have this, I had the space there. David played Oprah Winfrey's son. So again, another thing where what do they say? Like sliding doors or whatever? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So that that so he becomes close with Oprah there. 
He shows her middle of nowhere. Mm-hmm. She tweets about middle of nowhere. I, I actually faint flat out. <laughs> actually get lightheaded. It was a huge, huge deal for our small film at that point. And um, and so, yeah, she ends up coming on board Selma as, uh, as a producer and actually playing a small part in Selma. Then you have Carmen Ojogo as a, another Brit playing... Coretta Scott King, who she'd played before. Yeah. Which. Yeah, pretty um, incredible. You have, well, I guess let's, let's hone in on the fact that you mentioned like your father, I think was from Montgomery or lived yeah, in Yeah, from, from, from um, Lowndes County. Lowndes County. Uh, there's got to be a lot of surreal moments making that movie where it's in the real locations where. Mm-hmm. Black people couldn't have gone in many yeah. places at the time that you're depicting. You've said that there was one in particular that was one of the greatest moments of my life. Do you remember what that was referring to where I think your your dad was watching you shoot a scene? Yeah, he came out He came out to a couple of them. Was it the bridge or was it the Capitol? I think the Capitol. Yeah, that was the big day. Um, he, because that was in Montgomery and... Yeah, it was a big triumphant. It's the end of the movie. They've tried to cross this bridge three times, mm-hmm. and finally the third time they cross. And we, I mean, he got to watch me. Like, we shut down Montgomery. Like, all of the all of the roads to the Capitol were shut. You know, you got extras in period clothing, you know, picture cars brought in from Birmingham and Atlanta. Like, it is a movie that has come to this small town of Montgomery. And standing in the middle is his kid. And I'm there calling action and cut, and I'm moving people around. And I've got David playing Dr. King on this piece. I mean, it was um, such a... It's a day that I look back on now that he's passed on, and I am so grateful to God that I got to do my thing in front Mm -hmm. of my pops in a place that he cared so much about. You know, and so many people, I have a lot of empathy for folks who said, oh, you know, the person I love the most will never see me do these things. And, um, and, and And I hear that, but I... I'm lucky that I don't have to feel that with him. That's great. I will just say one other, I was reading, I think it was maybe the New York Times was on the set possibly when you were directing, I think, one of the bridge crossings. And I, I literally laughed out loud where you, apparently your direction, you're yelling to a bunch of extras like, where are my white racists? I did. I did. I did. It came out. It yeah. came out. Because, you know, the background actors are all, and so on the paper, they're called white racists. (laughs) You know, black voters, black marchers, white racists, white, white, white good people. Like, you know, they were all, hey, I needed them. I needed them. I couldn't, I couldn't, I couldn't make it sound nicer. And they were like, here, (laughs) raise their hand. Here we are. Oh, God. Well, okay. So this movie, just as a final point on this one, comes I remember seeing it. It was back to back AFI Fest with American Sniper. Somehow they got. Oh, I re- you remember, remember that? Back to I was I went to both back to back, which is gosh, pretty jarring. That is so that's a, incredible. That's a powerful day. I remember that. I remember being so scared because first of all, it's my first thing. Yeah. I'm showing it to. I mean, I'm I'm terrified. Yeah. But when you really think of like the whole awards season, it was very compressed. We wrapped in summer and we were out in, in, in Christmas. Yeah, yeah. I mean, when you talk about just, we've got this young filmmaker and she's doing whatever. She's going to do what we tell her. Yeah. You know, I mean, I had no wherewithal to say, 
no, I need more time. <laughs> it's like, okay, $20 million? Sure. Post for six months? Okay. Period pieces? Great. Let's do it. Right. Um, but but AFI what, was like in November, and we were coming out in December. Right. And I remember American Sniper was also kind of a late-breaking entry. Right. And it's... And I remember being at home and and being online and seeing the chatter for American Sniper, and I was just like, it was it was it was huge. Yeah, and I was like, oh, there's no way. I mean, there's there's no <laughs> why why. And then the next one was us, and I just remember going into the bathroom after I introduced it and vomiting, really, and staying in the bathroom, in the bathroom at the American Cinematheque. Yeah, yeah, at the Egyptian, wasn't it? I think yeah. So yeah, and I um. I just stayed in there. They couldn't get me to come out. They could not get me out. And finally, somebody said, "It's it's now. You you it is in the last five minutes. You must come now for the Q and A." I I I was in a total panic attack. I was what I was, was terrified. What were you scared of? Uh, rejection. You know, ridicule. Um, it was so big. It was like in that moment, the fear hit me because I was going so fast. Yeah. I wrote the script. I turned it in. I did one call. I was hired. We were in production within 60 days. I'm doing this massive thing. It's a period piece. I'm, I'm, I'm directing Oprah Winfrey. It's like, what? It's yeah. king. I'm making speeches. Like, I go straight into in. post. Yeah. I'm racing towards post. I never had time to stop and think, oh, people are going to see this and they're going to, you know what I mean? Like, right. there, you, you, there was no time to even metabolize that. It all happened in the bathroom. And I, I, I was frozen. I remember walking out. And uh, watching the last few, uh, few, I do a curtain call credits. Yeah, yeah. And they're clapping, and then they're yelling, and then they're whistling. And by the time my name comes up, they're screaming. And then I walk out on the stage, and they're standing. And I just remember, what is, what is going on? I mean, it was just stunning. Even in my body right now, yeah, telling yeah. a story I haven't thought about. I'm emotional. Yeah. Um, I was terrified and elated in the same moment. So then New York Times comes out, quote, it is a triumph of efficient, emphatic cinematic storytelling. And much more than that, of course, it would be hard to imagine a timelier, more necessary popular entertainment in the year of Ferguson, Missouri, a reminder both of progress made and promises unkept, close quote. And... There's a brief moment there where you could, I think, just enjoy the response to the movie. And then I guess around Christmas it started, right? So yeah. they're just not to <laughs> re-dredge up, but like there were some people taking issue about LBJ. There were, and so there was that which you you guys uh you know, you you engaged about that. There was Wish I hadn't, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. There was then another. I think it was the non-indictment of the guy from Eric Garner. What was that? Well, the oh, yeah, he didn't. Yeah, 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 yeah. He did. He wasn't right, indicted. Where, yeah, yeah, where yeah, yeah. That, that was a big, a big, a big thing in the culture at thing. that time. Yeah, and just and then the Oscar nominations. Yeah. So for a variety of reasons, I guess it became any conversation about Selma became about things other than Selma. Other than Selma. <laughs> right. And, you know, people can go back and forth about w what they feel about any one of those things. But like, what was that, the, just the reality of having to, you know, that you couldn't just talk about your movie or just experience the movie, but this was also all these other layers. Yeah. 
how did that? I look yeah. back on it now. I just, I was so scared. I was so new. You know what I mean? I had been a publicist for other folk, but I had never really dealt with being at the center of something that was so controversial at any point. Like I didn't do crisis communication. I wasn't dealing with this kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And so I, um, I was completely unprepared for it. You know, I look back at, at, I remember I had to go on Charlie Rose and like talk about the controversy of LBJ. I think back, it's like, kid, you're sitting there frightened, scared, shaking to justify your work where you center a Black perspective in the first feature film, major motion picture about Dr. King. And you are allowing, you are participating in a conversation about the worthiness of LBJ. I wish... I wish that would happen right now. I, I, I wouldn't allow it. You know, I, I, was, I was in a space where I was, you know, completely wrapped up in trying to justify my own expression and my own storytelling and feeling like, you know, I was losing a grip on this, 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 this piece that I had made that I'd made to celebrate and show the beauty of Black folks and the distriumph. And it became this distorted, crazy, ugly thing. Later, I found out where it was coming from. It was a rival studio planning stories and all that stuff. Yeah, that was really a clear paper trail to all that. But the bottom line was um, I was completely operating out of fear and all of that. And then Oscar So White happens. This is year one of two of Oscar So White. Because, right, the next year it happened again. Did it? Yeah, right. So this, you guys... We were the we were the we were the pioneer. The we pi- didn't do it. No, no. <laughs> Just to remind, for in case anyone, I don't know how anyone, but like, I I think uh, there's 20 acting slots. Certainly, none of them were black people. I think there may have been a Hispanic. I can't remember that. But the point was, Oscar. It was white, and then it happened again the next year. But this was the first time where, and you've got, I guess, going into that announcement that morning. What did you? kind of think was going to happen? And then when coming out, what did you feel? One of the things that I am, am adamant to say, yeah. if you look at anything that I was saying before that, yeah. I never had designs on any kind of director. I don't believe director, I, I don't believe that is possible in my lifetime. I believe that there's work that can be done so that that happens for someone else along the way. You're saying for yourself or for any black woman? I, I I hope that there's a black woman who can <laughs> who can maneuver through what is involved in making that trajectory happen, right? Yeah. Because it, it is, is far from just merit-based, right? So I will say that my heartbreak was about David. That's all I wanted was David. Um, I, my heart had already been broken on, 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 on screenplay. So uh, it wasn't mine. My name wasn't on it, but my hopes and my dreams and my, my, my love was all into David and, and this happening for him, that nomination. And that really took me down. I mean, the film was not for best picture and song and one song. I mean, yeah, yeah. it's not shop liver. That's why I hate that it has this narrative right, of like, was, I mean, are you kidding me? Best, best picture is Yeah, that's great. I, I, I'd love to see one right about now. Like, you know what I mean? <laughs> right, like, right. are you kidding me? But at the time, it was so wrapped up yeah, in the yeah, space yeah. of lack and they didn't get something right, and all right. of that. And I was really participating in that because of my, of the loss of that moment for David and yeah. what that would have done for him. And, um, and so... I get that. I so, mean, yeah, it was, was, it was a crazy, crazy time. He was amazing. Huh? He uh, was. Okay. Coming out of that whole period, you are now at a different level of 
by far of, of prominence and you got to decide what you're going to do. And first of all, how did you suddenly you're, you're somebody people knew and you're a, you're a symbol for a lot of people. I mean, over the years since then, you're, you're a Barbie, you're a, you're a Funko bobblehead, you're a Ben and Jerry's ice cream. That's not what you were necessarily uh, oh. expecting when you started making films. So, but just what you, in that season and then coming out of that season, like, was there a sense of like, I don't know, burden pressure that you, so many people did invest their, their hopes and aspirations or whatever in you? No, I never felt that. No. No, um, because you, you, I just needed another job. Yeah, <laughs> you know what I mean. And they, they did not come. Yeah, I mean after some other, I, I don't get scripts. Even then, it, you're saying it. No, I'm telling you right now, Scott. Yeah. I don't get scripts. Is it, I don't. I think people think you got a stack of scripts and they're coming every week and you're making choices. Like I just, it doesn't happen. And and because I mean I don't know. Maybe they also. Is it possible they think you only want to direct something you've written? Um, I think. I think they could ask if they there was something yeah, that yeah, they yeah. wanted yeah, yeah, yeah. me to do. No, right? that's interesting. I mean, the yeah. only time that I was offered something outright by a studio was Wrinkle in Time. Okay. Now, th first, though, I think <laughs> before that happened, you and Oprah decided to do Queen Sugar. Mm -hmm. After so, Selma. Right. So this is 2016 to 2022, seven seasons, 89 episodes. And you did write and direct some I'm of them. I'm going to say that again. Seven seasons, that's 89 that's episodes. That's a lot. That's a lot. Wow. That's great. And highest rated premiere on OWN. The, 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 I think there's a lot of things that, like the main the main legacy there, though, I think you can probably uh, maybe will agree, is the fact that you employed so many mm -hmm. female directors, many black female directors. I think so. Of those 89 episodes, 42 different directors, 39 who had never directed episodic TV, including some of the people who came before you, like we talked about Julie Dash. Then we've got people who are like the next wave of Garrett Bradley's. Um, but why? Okay. So here is a situation where it's, you don't have to direct every episode. You don't have to, nobody could, but you're choosing to approach it in that way, which had never been done. Why, why was that the, the goal there? Well, you know, I mean, Oprah gave me the reins and allowed me to have this show um, and to and to make it in the likeness of whatever I wanted. So I decided to make it in the likeness of myself and people like me, you know, women from the independent film world or women who were outside of what an episode director would look like, you know, choosing Christina Voros. <clears throat> Christina Voros, who is was the 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 the, the showrunner main director on Dave, David Oyelowo's Bass Reeves hit show, right? She was a cinematographer who wanted to direct, and um, and so she directed her first episodes of Queen Sugar. Um, so they were women who had made independent films, or women who you know a professor of film, or a documentarian who wanted to make a, a transition, or a cinematographer who wanted to make the transition, or an actor who wanted to make the transition, who I'd follow closely if they'd made a short, if they'd made something, you know, we give them, we give them the shot. And so, um, but I, I, I wanted to create a community around people who were, were, were like me, kind of on the outside edges and create a show that, that served them and allowed them to serve the show. And the show, while the, the women directors are a big part of it, I mean, the show is, is a show that follows a Black family for seven 
year, seven seasons, uh, the growth, the beauty, the tragedy, the triumph, the suffering, the 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 the, the sexiness, um, and it just had not been done. And uh, it's one of my, although it never really reached a mainstream uh, uh, success, uh, it is so loved by people who love it. It is so loved by people who love it that it is, uh, you know, one of the the crown jewels for me. Also, during the run of that is 13th. Mm-hmm. This is your back uh, examining the prison industrial complex, this time as a documentary. Uh, 13th is 13th Amendment, abolish slavery except as form of criminal punishment. First documentary to open New York Film Festival. Nobody even knew you were doing this. Until, I know. You remember you, it was a surprise. How do you keep a secret like that? I just, I just, I started working on it. I got a call from Netflix asking if I wanted to do something. I don't know if I ever said this, but I got, the call was if I wanted to make a documentary special that would be a companion piece to Oranges of the New Black. That's how it started. I don't think I ever have said that anywhere. No, I don't think you did. Did I want to come and make a companion piece to Oranges of the New Black? I was like, companion piece? Like what? You know, I don't know. Like, you know, it's just something that would talk about it side by side. No, <laughs> but but it, it, that morphed into well, what about a, a real thing, like a, a real piece about prison right. and what that is. And having done that research and known so much about it from Middle of Nowhere, my other film had a lot to say and a lot to explore about it. And so it became its own standalone piece. And I just remember everybody was kind of like, you know, you in a, in a story, a documentary like that, you it, it might make might not predictable, but you might know that like Angela Davis or somebody would have something to say. Newt Gingrich, that yeah, like some of the yeah, people yeah, that yeah, you yeah. and it's just it was a really and that was a and that was the belated first Oscar nomination. That was the first Oscar nomination, the only, the only. So. Hey, I'll take it. <laughs> okay, so we got the year after that Family Feud music video for Jay Z and Beyonce. <laughs> My first and only music first video. and only music video. Uh, the year after that, Wrinkle in Time adaptation of this this uh, book that had been sort of for generations out there. But for you, though, it started with a possibility of Black Panther. Is that how the conversation started? Uh, no, two different divisions. Okay. Yeah, two different divisions. Ended up being the same company, but different folks. Yeah. 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 And Tendo was that, was Tendo again to the, the person who thought for Wrinkle. For Wrinkle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember, I remember, I mean, Wrinkle in Time is my first and only studio film I've ever made. Is you know, that, Selma uh, was made by Pathé and sold right. to Paramount. 13th was, you know, made by, by, by Netflix as kind of this, you know, one-off, but it wasn't a, a standard studio process. So, so Wrinkle in Time was actually the only time that I got you know, invited to the lot. I mean, of course, I'm on 10,000 lots, but invited to the lot. And I had a deal with Warner Brothers at the time. I'm doing Queen Sugar. I'm doing other yeah, things. Yeah. But to come on a lot for the purpose of the studio wants to present you with an opportunity. They hand you the script in the room. You know what I mean? The people are there. They're talking about what, what you're, you know, like very specific. Please come make this movie. It's the first and only time I've ever experienced it. Yeah. yeah. You, you offer me a movie? Yes. I will go make this movie. Now, was it surprising to you that that is the story they wanted you to tell? Um, I was surprised they wanted me to tell anything. Anything? Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? I mean, you know, it was de- definitely Tendo. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, and and they had an interest in, in making the girl be a black girl, so. 
That was was that your idea or there? No, they they were that was what well, they were interested in. Yeah, the girl's father, or uh, or excuse, let me put it, the Chris Pine's character. Yeah, what was his name? It's in the book, Mister Murray. Which is another my father's my was, my father's name is Murray, and he had just he had just passed. passed away. It was very difficult because I was just hearing his name everywhere, so I would just call him the father. The, the whole crew called him. The father. the father. They were like, I don't know why we're calling him because I would just say the father this, the father that. Right. We need the father's clothes. We need the father. And so then everyone just started saying the father. But the reason why is because I just couldn't hear his yeah, name. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You told, uh, I guess first of all, the VFX things that like had you ever no encountered. So fun. You did enjoy it. Loved it. Loved it. My VFX supervisor on Wrinkle in Time is my VFX supervisor on Origin. You had said once. Quote, I had my experience with Wrinkle, which wasn't a horrible experience. It was an experience, close quote. I think that's pretty neutral diplomatic uh, pretty, quote, don't you think? I'm going to leave it at that. Leave it at that, all right. No, no, I mean, it was it was a studio experience. And it was, uh, I'm an independent filmmaker who has, a, you know, uh, uh, a flair for the entrepreneurial, right? Like, I like to build my own things. I, I the Queen Sugar, I thrived in that. It was my show. I was doing my thing. You know, this campus that we're sitting in is my show. Yeah. I did to do my thing. Um, you know, uh, and so I, 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 I struggled. I don't know if I struggled outwardly, but certainly inwardly in a process that had a lot more, I had a lot less control over almost everything yeah. than I'd ever experienced. Would you still want to do another studio movie? At this point, that, that's why I'm sitting here with the independent film called Origin. But that's because— I don't think so. No. I, it would depend. It would yeah. depend on who and what was involved and right. what and what the, the circumstances were. Last thing before Origin, I have to—and it kind of—I uh, think there's obviously themes that run through most of these, but, but when they see us um, was biting off maybe more than anything you'd ever— Mm-hmm. What are we talking? Five and a half hours. Yeah, it's a lot. How many shooting days? Too many. Too many. <laughs> but like, too many in New York. New York is a rough place to shoot, especially when your days are filled with you know prisons and detention centers and yeah. like it was hard stuff. Um, that format. So we've you've talked about studio films, indie films, limited series TV, Ongoing and, and series. series TV. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, how, where does where does the limited series format fit in your? Uh, I like it. You did like it? I really like it a lot. We did DMZ for DC Comics, a great piece with Rosario Dawson and and um, and Benjamin Bratt. Um, I did Colin in Black and White for Netflix. Mm-hmm. I like that format. I think we're going to see less of it. Because it's, it's just expensive or what? It's expensive. You can't amortize it across anything. You're putting up these sets. You're putting all this stuff up and right. it's just a one shot, you know, it's a one shot thing. And so I'm finding, I feel like less and less. I'm hearing we want more ongoing work. When They See Us was originally, I think, titled Central Park Five. Yes. Why did that change? Um, well, the, the, as I got to know the men, they 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 didn't identify Central Park right. Five. And this was through their lens. They they ex- identified the Exonerated Five. And uh, and I felt like, you know, something happening that's really related to cast in that idea that right. we can kind of put all these boys together under this moniker and we know who they are and what that means. And that, that just wasn't who they, they are. So mm-hmm. we were interested in finding something that broke that up a little. And just for, for the record, finally, on that one, you just because you have these crazy stories of how these all came up. When they see us, maybe the craziest. You, How did that oh, right. first get floated? When, when they see us, ended up with six Emmy nominations 
and started from a tweet. A tweet. <laughs> One of the few good legacies of, of Twitter. Of Twitter. Yeah, yes. Yeah. <laughs> Raymond Santana, one of the five, right. tweeted me and asked me if I would make a movie about them. This should be, would this be next? Would this yeah. be next? Could yeah, this yeah. be next? Yeah, yeah. And uh, I guess the answer is yes. Yeah. And as you say, all the Emmys and all that. Yeah. Okay. So, origin. Did you know Isabel Wilkerson before the project? Forget about, obviously, the work's been prominent. This is, and we should say for anyone who doesn't know, Pulitzer Prize for her first book, 2010, Warmth of Other Sons, comes back 2020 with cast, The Origins of Our Discontent. But like, was she somebody that you personally knew? No, I did not know her. I know a lot of people. You know, you pass by people. You met her at a cocktail right. party or whatever. Yeah, yeah. No, no. I'd never. It was a completely cold call. What even made you think to do the cold call? Uh, the book, maybe around the second time of reading it, I had this idea that I could make a book out of these really tough ideas if I had her as a character guiding us through the research of the book. I liked it. I liked that idea. When that hit me, I thought, ah, oh, that's a movie. You know, I, 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 I... Did you know about all the stuff that was going on in her personal I life? I did not. I only knew about her mother and her, and her, and her, excuse me, her father and her, um, her husband. Yeah. So I didn't know if that was going to figure prominently into it. Like, I didn't know what I was going to find, I don't know what her life was like, right. so I didn't know, but I knew, wow, a, a black woman kind of solving this glo the mystery of a global phenomenon is a pretty, if I can get her, like how she came up with this, there could be something there. Let me talk to her about it. And so, but as I talked with her, what I got was a story of, of real, uh, that, that I interpreted it as of, of real grief and loss and a woman who was writing this book to anchor herself to the world, to keep going. And then that became very fascinating to me because of my own experiences with loss. And so they became very intertwined and, um, and it became its own adventure that I hadn't even predicted. And she kind of, she's a storyteller, obviously. She got what you wanted to do with it. I think that's because she's a storyteller. Yeah. Like I remember talking to her, with her and I said, I regard you as an academic, mm -hmm. you know, and she's like, I regard myself as an artist. Mm -hmm. So she really, from that artist storyteller space, um, just gave me the stories and said, I, I know what you need to do. Go do it. And you, by this point, have kind of formed your stock company in the same way that Scorsese has his crew of people, uh, any number of, um, you know, great filmmakers. You've got Nisi Nash, that has been in When They See Us, Selma, and now this. Yes. Uh, so she's... She's the a sister, vet. right? Yes. And then as your lead, what made you decide Anjanou Ellis Taylor had been in When They See Us yes. as and got a supporting actress Emmy nomination, yeah. mm -hmm. which really I think probably led to King I think Richard. To Lovecraft. To first. Lovecraft, yeah. right. Then, then King Richard. And then King yeah. Richard. So she's now an Oscar nominee. But like what made you say she's Isabel? Well, gosh, I mean, she's I I, I just think she's you know, we all have our actors who we love, you know, and she in that category of, you know, black woman, adult, grown, you know, in her craft, you know, knowing how to use her instrument. I just think that she's 
you know, far and beyond uh, what a lot of other folks, how a lot, uh, how a lot of other folks are approaching the work. Yeah. And I needed that kind of rigor in this. There are a lot of incredible actresses that do a lot of different things, a lot of different ways, but I needed her mind. And I knew from working with her and when they see us, this woman is an intellectual being. She is, there are some actresses and actors that you work with, you're like, wow, it's a real spiritual kind of act. You know what I mean? It's more spirit or it's more physical. It's more, but with Anjanu, it is, it is a thinking process. Mm -hmm. And I needed that for this. And I wanted to be in partnership and be thinking with her. And, uh, and it was exactly that. So she, she comes on and do you connect her with Isabel, are you, was how how involved was Isabel as this thing was coming together? She was very, like I said, gracious in allowing us to take the ball and run with it. I mean, when I look at it from the outside, she is looking at a project that is going to chronicle the greatest losses of her life. Mm -hmm. um, you know, her husband, her mother, her best friend, who was her cousin back to back in a very short amount of time that led to the writing of the book. Um, I don't think I would even tell that story to anyone, let alone want to be involved in the day-to-day -day of it. Um, she was gracious over a two-year process to tell me those stories, to entrust me with them, and also to entrust me with their the interpretation of them. So she gave me the stories, and then she she allowed us mm -hmm. to, 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 to interpret it and tell it. And the fact that you guys, 37 days to make this film in three countries, U.S., Germany, and India, three different Continents. Continents. Yeah. Time periods. Seven time periods. Seven time periods. Yeah. Um, with how much of a budget? 38. And I mean, they're- 18 they're, more than Selma. Did it, did it feel like that? <laughs> I guess, how do you, I guess so it's such no. a different thing. No, well, it felt great because we controlled every penny, every dime. There was no fat. Yeah. And there wasn't this extra bit going here and there, like Paul Garns had that budget down to the penny. And we knew exactly what we valued and what we wanted to spend every dollar on, and we did. And it, it's obviously it is an unconventional, I don't can't think of another, maybe, maybe there is one where it's about the author arriving at the story, how, how, what led to the story, but also the story itself kind of interwoven. Yes. And you, you had some resistance to that. Can you, t how did this move, this movie has, has, uh, has moved around in a lot of different ways. It ended up where you wanted it to, but what, why, why do you, what did you make of, uh, maybe some people had a harder time seeing what you were trying to do? Yeah, I think so. I mean, the book is, it's like almost unfilmable. I get it when people read it, it's like, what is she going to do? Mm -hmm. How are you going to do this? What is it going to be? You know, I get the question of why didn't you make it a doc? It would have been neat. like, well, I get, I get all those things. Um, but, you know, I felt, I, I, I saw the story in it. And, um, and so originally uh, I had, Tendo Nagenda was at Netflix mm -hmm. and had bought the, bought the rights for me to make it at Netflix. Um, he leaves Netflix uh, right around the time that I'm turning in the script. Um, and at that time, there's a feeling of, we like it. We want to make it next year. I was like, wait, wait, no, 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 no. I'm ready. We're ready to go. Like, we're ready to go this year. We're, we're making it this year. We, we want to make it next year. Uh, well, then how's that going to work? <laughs> because I don't want to wait. So I asked them for it. I said, let me buy it back. You know, let me buy it back and let me, and let me 
maybe bring it back to you on the other side, but I, I, I got to make this now. This is in me to make now. And so they were gracious enough. They did not have to. They did not have to. Gracious enough to allow me to take it. And, uh, and you know, we're really good partners in that way. I'd had a great relationship with them before. I mean, I did 13 with them, yeah. extraordinary experience, calling in black and white, when they see us, extraordinary experiences yeah, yeah. with them. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it, it, was, it, was a, it was a parting that was fine. Is it when's the last time you made a movie without a um, somebody behind it? We're talking two hundred fifty. That's right. <laughs> yes, this sir. Thirty-eight. Yeah, million. But the scary? common denominator was Paul Garns. Right. So you, I'm, I'm telling yeah. you, the man is your is, producer, is yeah. an incredible, incredible, hands-on, real deal, hardcore, inc- exceptional producer. And so to be able to make something on two fifty, to make be able to make something on thirty-eight, he produced every episode of Queen Sugar on the set, lit, moved his life to New Orleans for that show. So, you know, uh, you're able to do it when you have, you know, a partner like that. There are scenes in this movie that are pretty haunting. And like, you know, you've got the uh, slave ship, you've got the book burning, you've got uh, the, in India in the, in the, I don't know what you call it. Manual scavengers. It, it, yeah. yeah. Um, segregation era stuff in this country just was there something that hit you the hardest doing it and and do you find that because i mean there's a lot of probably traumatic stuff in a lot of these projects we've been talking about does it are you at the point where your thick your skin is so thick that it doesn't sting as much anymore or is it still you know recreating again like we were i was kind of like joking about where you were saying like where are my white racists but like they're you're in some pretty you know yes it's obviously it's fiction except when you're doing a documentary like 13th or whatever but it's still you're surrounding yourself with some pretty heavy uh stuff do you how does that affect you um you know i think for for me i'm telling stories about triumph and survival but in order to tell a story about triumph you have to understand what's being overcome or is there's no triumph, you know, to tell a story about survival, what are you surviving? So I feel like I'm, it's, it's, it's part of a beginning, middle and end of a story. And if I want to tell the story about the, the glory and the magnificence and the survival and the resilience of a people, then I have to tell that story. And that story requires telling it and showing it and being there. In a way that, you know, I think when I'm dealing with trauma and violent things, my goal is to make it deeply specific and very humane. You know, we will focus on the hands. You will see the eyes. You will understand the skin. You will know that person who is being harmed before they are harmed so that you can, that they are humanized, so that this isn't just violence writ large for violence sake, which is what I see every day on every movie, every time I turn on the television. So I, I find it interesting that kind of the trauma and violence, like, I'm at, you know, th- that comes up in my films when, oh my God, like yeah. these guys are making films that, be, it's just killing and murder and violence and horrible things that are happening across so many movies for no reason. Right. For, for no reason. This reason, because it really happened. And I'm tell and I'm and I'm trying to explain how this mirrors what we're experiencing now. So I, I you know, it's it's challenging for me the trauma and that like, you know, John Wick is trauma. No, for you know sure. what I mean? Like this stuff is traumatizing. And, you know, to see that kind of you know, pain, uh, 
Um, but it's got cotton candy around it, so it's okay. Mine doesn't have cotton candy around it, so it 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 it, it feels more painful. But it it has a reason. There's an objective. There's an intentionality to the reason why it's it's rendered. And so you know, I mean, that's something that I that I grapple with a lot yeah. in, in that question. Yeah. Yeah. Last question. This movie is now going out into the world. It's obviously a passion project in a way that. Not that others weren't, but like you've had to it's really different. fight for this. Yeah, one. yeah, for sure. Um, so just if somebody want, if we want to make this a time capsule, it's January. 2024. January it just turned. 6, 2024 6, yeah. that we're talking. Is it the 6th? Oh, yeah. Oh, wow. wow. Interesting. <laughs> uh, happy anniversary. Yeah, yeah. Indeed. Um, so as you're fighting to, to get this movie, the audience that it should have mm-hmm. as you're, you know, looking at the society that you've spent, made uh, many of these projects about, as in our own community, you are now on the board of governors of the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences. This is exactly a decade now mm-hmm. after Selma uh, and all of that. Um, just what's your, uh, what's your state of mind? Mm, interesting. Wow. Just a small question. I'm all messed up. I'm all mixed up. (laughs) You know what? I am, I am, I've learned a lot over this past decade and I um, am happy with what I've done and I'm going to start doing things differently. I, you know, have given a lot of time to boards of various institutions that are the pillars of our industry, whether it's DGA or AFI or the Academy. Mm-hmm. That's a lot of Saturday meetings and conference calls and votes and reading the minutes and subcommittees and all of that work that I, I do. And it was all done in a quest to try to, in a belief that there could be change and that everyone um, should be able to put their hands on on this thing called our industry and and help shape it and move it to different place. Um, I think I believe that a little less these days. And I don't regret the time that I've spent because I've learned a lot, a lot. But now I'm interested in kind of marrying those learnings. I mean, board of Sundance, board of like, you know what I mean? Like the the Sundance board, AFI board, like a lot of boards, a lot of insight into the way the institutions work, a lot of good people in those spaces. But these are institutions that are ingrained in a certain way of being. And I've worked to try to shape and and um, contribute to what they are. And I think now I've decided that I'm going to focus on my own institution building, which I've been doing also at the same time with Array. Yeah. And just to focus on that full time. So I'm finishing out my terms of everything. And won't be doing it again. Um, I tried. I did some things, and um, but there's only so much you can move in each of our time, in each of our journeys, right? And so I think you know the the, the arc. Our, 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 the, the, it's a journey, and each person has a step and a role to play. And I think I, mine will be ongoing. I'll play different roles, but the kind of like that institutional, let me kind of get inside and try to be a part of it. Um, 
I think that's passed for me. It's, it's sad. It's sad to hear that in a, on one yeah. level, but it's interesting how you, because your evolution on this, you know, I remember one of the things I read was like, at a certain point, you're like, no more panels. Yeah. You know what I mean? You have to learn it. And you remember you that? Just, yeah, yeah. No more panels and I don't do them anymore. About like diversity panels. or that's right. About how... It's just kind of figuring out where can you be most effective. That's right. That's right. And so, you know, it's not a it's not a headline. I'm resigning from boards. It's yeah, none yeah. of that. No. And I hope it's, it doesn't. It, no, no, no. It's not used as that. It's just saying when you ask me where I am right now, yeah. I am more interested in, um, you know, this time in our industry where everything's unsure. You know, I mean, studios buying each other and streamers that you thought were solid, not solid. And people fighting and strikes. And, you know, I mean, just coming out of the pandemic and this election that's about to come up and like it's all very uncertain, but it also is ripe for opportunity. And so why continue to play in the same sandbox? Like there's some sand over there. There's no box around it, but it's still fun. It's the beach. Like, let me go over there and see what's happening. And so I just uh, I'm going to 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 pursue some of my ideas that are outside of that box. Yeah. And uh, thankfully, I'd always been doing it. Like, you know, Array is a, is a living being, thriving, real uh, institution that's in its own anywhere. right. It's not going anywhere and it's going to grow. And that's what I'm doing. Well, thank you for all the fascinating work and for doing this. And I uh, really appreciate it. Thank sorry. you for that's the research. The, the the high regard that goes into someone doing the kind of research you do, you've done is not lost on me. It's rare for me. And for so sure. much respect. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you for that. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks for listening to Awards Chatter. We really appreciate it and would really appreciate you taking just a minute more to subscribe to the podcast and to leave us a rating and review on your podcast app. And to follow us on Twitter and Instagram, where our handle is at Awards Chatter. On those platforms, we announce upcoming guests and provide details about special live recordings of the podcast that you can attend. Until next time, thanks again for tuning in. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Over by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.